Welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly news analysis podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week, obviously, we're talking about the election here in the United States. Ongoing counting going on in a lot of precincts. Obviously, I'm not going to be doing like a big recap of the election or going into the minutia of the Electoral College or things like that. You should be getting that information elsewhere. Instead, I'm going to be talking about the election in terms of how it affects the prospects of right-wing organizing and nationalism in this country. Well, if you're a listener to this podcast, you might be surprised about how election night went down. There was surprisingly little violence or disruption on election night. Uh, Obviously, there was some sound of fury since then, uh, but so far it's signified nothing. Mostly there have been minor demonstrations by folks in Detroit and a few other ones in the Southwest, in Nevada and Arizona in particular, but these haven't borne any fruit and haven't really been successful in terms of disrupting any kind of electoral process. You know, the votes are still being counted and they also haven't involved any serious violence or property destruction, which honestly, frankly, was something that I was fully expecting to hear about on Tuesday. So a little bit of a surprise. There have been a few arrests and some threatening behavior, um, but honestly, there's been much less than on any given day during the wave of Black Lives Matter protests back in the summer. This is a little surprising um, to me. However, there is a lot of indication that this kind of violence will be occurring in the future. Uh, We see right-wing chatter and right-wing discussions about preparing for this kind of violence, preparing for this kind of demonstration, preparing to do things that will actively disrupt the electoral process as time goes on, um, up until the meeting of the Electoral College uh, on December 14th, that's mid-December, and up until Inauguration Day, which is on January 20th, which is, you know, the big deciding day that there has to be a president by that day. Now, as for the president himself, he's been doing the things that he signaled he'd be doing for a whole long time, right? He's trying to discredit mail-in ballots. He's trying to challenge results and file lawsuits. He's making tweets. He's appealing to his supporters. He's telling people to get out. He's telling people to protest. He's advocating for all of these things, but he's not pulling any of the like big shit that a lot of other observers include and and myself included were afraid that he would do. Um, Whether that's from hubris, you know, he didn't think he would need them. Uh, or from poor planning or from poor strategizing. I am not a Trump psychologist. I don't know any of those things. Uh, However, I do want to say that even what he is currently doing, um, which is trying to advocate that only certain ballots count and that those ballots that don't count are the ones that don't support him and are disproportionately from people of color and from people who live in major cities who tend to vote Democratic. This is just shy. I mean, it's just shy of completely discrediting the concept of electoral democracy, right? Of, of saying that the president gets to decide who gets to decide who the president is, right? The president gets to decide who the people are. The president gets to decide who should be in control. The president gets to decide who is representative of the country. Now, We're shy of that, but again, we're just shy of it. And it's something that we're going to be seeing from the president uh, as time continues on. Aside from the president, in a few down-ballot races, we've had some right-wing victories, uh, particularly in United States House races. One in particular was Marjorie Greene in Georgia, somebody who I'd mentioned previously, who uh, is a very transparent QAnon supporter. 
another fun is a uh, representative or newly elected potential representative, Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina, uh, who has authored a now famous tweet uh, upon his victory election night, his tweet to announce that he had won his United States House of Representatives seat was, quote, cry more, lib. Now, if that's not a Gen Z type alt-right tweet, I don't know what it is. Uh, Madison Cawthorn also is famous for being among the youngest people elected to the United States House. He is 25 years old. And, of course, rounding out the right-wing people and the GOP and how they're talking about election night is uh, the strategist and discredited uh, former White House Chief of Staff, Steve Bannon, who has been back on TV, making the rounds, uh, back on Fox News, getting commentary, um, despite his pending criminal trials. Um, He's looking at the long term, uh, which is what he is good at. And he quotes uh, a famous Roman saying, fortune favors the bold. And what he means is that if Trump and his supporters want to hang on to the presidency, they're going to have to do things that they might find unpalatable or that might have seemed inconceivable uh, just a few years prior. But that's Bannon's whole deal. He's trying to push the envelope. And the things that he's suggesting are precisely the things that I and other commentators have been warning you about. Violence, electoral disruption, murder. One of the more curious pieces of commentary coming out of the election on Tuesday is the apparent increase in Trump's vote share of people of color, particularly men of color. So we're talking about black men and Latino men. Um, there's some indication that this increase is real. There's some indication that those exit polls might be flawed. Uh, in any case, there's a whole lot of chatter about it and, you know, people being really surprised and being like, well, how could it be possible for these people to vote for somebody who is, you know, a white supremacist? Now, part of the problem with this particular perspective and part of the reason that this surprise, you know, maybe shouldn't be quite so surprising to people is due to the just like, bonkers inadequacy of the social identity category Latino uh, to adequately describe um, people who come from dozens of different countries with their own racial, ethnic, religious, uh, linguistic differentiators uh, with their own histories, with their own uh, relationship to questions of race and class and how they intersect. Uh, For example, the very idea that a descendant of a relatively wealthy expat from Cuba would be in exactly the same category as an, as ident like the same identity category as the descendant of an undocumented immigrant from central Mexico is, you know, it, 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 it's simplistic at best. Right. Um, but the other thing, uh, the thing that I think needs a little bit more correction, um, is slippage that's been happening in uh, discourse on the left um, amongst liberals and progressives for some time about white supremacy, nationalism, and fascism. Uh, You hear a lot of talk about fascism. You hear a lot of talk about nationalism. And a lot of times people, you know, will make some, some like incendiary tweet that's just like, you should just call it what it is. It's white supremacism, period. And then they get a bunch of likes or whatever, right? Um, But that simplicity masks a real complexity. The fact is that you can be a nationalist, and especially a U.S. nationalist, without being a white supremacist. You can even be a fascist 
without being a white supremacist. Uh, white supremacism, nationalism, and fascism are, you know, maybe something like uh, squares, quadrilaterals, and rectangles, you know? Um, you know, the, the, there are many different categories of them. Um, you don't have to be one to be the other, but, you know, they nest into each other. This is an analogy that I'm not going to follow the whole way, but the point is that you can be a fascist without being a white supremacist. But fascists are nationalists and white supremacists are also nationalists, right? Um, it's just that the most famous fascists in history and particularly the ones famous in the United States, they were white supremacists, right? Adolf Hitler, um, Mussolini to a slightly lesser extent, and most fascists in the United States, uh, including proto-fascist movements like the KKK, uh, are white supremacists. But examples from other potentially more comparable countries, uh, countries that have more diverse uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds, countries that have histories of colonialism and enslavement of people from Africa, um, they have real multiracial, multinational fascist movements. Um, I'm thinking here particularly of Brazil, the Integralismo movement um, in Brazil was a fascist movement in Brazil from the 20s up until the 40s and 50s when it moderated slightly. That's a story for a different episode. Um, but they had members who were black. They had members who were indigenous. Um, they had members who were white. Now, the leadership was primarily white um, on a national level, but on a regional and local level, there were black and African-descended leaders in this fascist movement. Um, the fact is that fascism and nationalism do not just appeal to white people. They appeal to many people across the world. Uh, as I've said many times before, arguably the largest and most successful fascist organization potentially ever is in India. Now we're talking about the RSS and the BJP. What this means is that going forward, we need to understand that Fascism as an ideology can shave off support. It can win the hearts and minds of people who uh, many people in the United States with with their sort of like blinkers on about what the far right is and how it operates. People that they thought would be completely untouchable. Um, people can be really galvanized by ideologies like nationalism or male supremacism and misogyny. Um, as opposed to white supremacism and move into a fascist camp. And what that means is that in the future, we can expect growing fascist movements, growing nationalist movements in the United States to gain support in places that many people, uh, you know, we're talking like the New York Times editorial board, will just find completely confounding. Um, and my hope is that with this podcast and with other efforts, I and other commentators will shed some light on those distinctions and make them a little bit more understandable. All right, this week's See You in Hell brings us back to the United States, but also back to Europe again. I'm going to be talking about a U.S.-born poet and famous expatriate and fascist Ezra Pound. Now, Ezra Pound is a perfect example of a really controversial fascist. He is a truly renowned artist um, who was also just straight up a fascist. Uh, Ezra Pound was born in Idaho Territory uh, in the late 1800s, um, but his family moved back east very quickly. Uh, Ezra Pound attended several elite schools, uh, prep schools, military schools, military academies, that sort of thing. 
Um, and his family did some European traveling, uh, especially to Spain and Italy, uh, where eventually, after uh, finishing his education, Pound landed in the London literary circles in his youth. Um, you know, we're talking his 20s. He, like many other artists, had a lot of economic troubles during World War I. Uh, his income shrank horribly during the war um, because he was unwilling to write patriotic poems, which made his life, you know, pretty difficult. This is also when his really virulent and disgusting anti-Semitism uh, became a lot more apparent to those who spent time around him. Uh, he started to develop an anti-Semitic view of the economy and how the world worked, blaming everything on usury and blaming usury on Jewish people. Now, this is a very, very standard, like, boilerplate fascist perspective, uh, particularly from the time that we're talking about, the 20s and the 30s. With Mussolini's rise to power in Italy and his ongoing travels in Italy and time spent there, uh, Pound became really enamored of Mussolini and fascism. Uh, he wasn't alone among famous artists for having this kind of fashion fascination. Um, a lot of others shared it, uh, among them Salvador Dali. Um, but Pound is possibly the most famous and most disgusting example of this kind of approach by an otherwise famous and talented artist uh, to fascism. Now, Pound was really excited about fascism because it was dynamic, because it was intuitive, because it was romantic, because it was natural. Uh, this is what drew a lot of artists and even, even a lot of just people to fascism um, because of its claim to being a, you know, a third way, an escape from ideological debates. Um, that that, that it's, it's, it's not intellectual, it's about feeling, it's about truth, right? Um, he met Mussolini once, Pound did, uh, actually on the day that Adolf Hitler became the chancellor of Germany. Um, and he thought that Mussolini was a political and artistic genius. You know, he thought that Mussolini just understood his work. Um, throughout the war, Pound stayed in Italy, even after, uh, Italy was invaded by the allies. He stayed in the German supported rump state in Northern Italy and did a radio show, you know, effectively a sort of like Radio Free Europe type thing, uh, but for the fascists, um, broadcast to the United States, to the United Kingdom, and various other occupied territories. Um, his broadcasts were anti-Semitic, pro-fascist, pro-Italy, anti-FDR, anti-communist, blah, 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 right? Exactly what you'd expect. Of course, uh, eventually the Allies invade, and Pound is arrested by them, and put into prison in northern Italy for a few months, and then transferred to a psychiatric ward in the United States, uh, where he stayed until 1958. Um, he was in a psychiatric ward because he avoided trial for his, you know, treasonous acts um, by being found to be incapable of standing trial. Even while in the psychiatric ward, though, he maintained his connections with the artists outside, uh, with the friends that he had made, you know, notably Ernest Hemingway. Uh, he even won uh, a few major artistic awards while inside, one of them from the Library of Congress. In 1958, he secures his release from the psych ward and immediately returns to Europe, particularly to Venice, back to Italy, um, where he continued to write and wrote uh, some of his um, largest works. Uh, I literally mean largest, like, like, like he wrote an extremely long poem. Uh, I'm not a literary critic. I can't tell you about the value of this art, but the fact is that it 
was actually really renowned and remains controversially renowned in uh, literary circles in, in the English-speaking world. Like I said, Pound uh, moves back to Italy, uh, where he remains um, until his death at the age of 87 uh, on this week, uh, the 1st of November, 1972. Now, I've chose to talk about Pound this week, not just because he's a relatively famous fascist, um, but rather because of the lesson that his friends can teach us. Now, remember, even after Ezra Pound moved to fascist Italy, worked for the Italian fascist government, made Italian fascist propaganda, espoused horrible anti-Semitic policies, beliefs, ideologies, used horrible slurs, made the fascist salute. Even after that, his friends and the academy, you know, the, the people who control and determine who's worthy of kind of academic praise, um, literary praise, they still liked him. They still understood him. They thought that, you know, he could be rehabilitated. Uh, they thought that maybe he didn't mean it. Uh, they thought that, you know, maybe something had gone wrong in his mind and they, they thought maybe he could be cured. They did everything that they possibly could to deny thinking that their friend, an intelligent, worthy, otherwise upstanding, brilliant person, could be a fascist. And unfortunately, that's a reality that a lot of us throughout the world are going to be hitting uh, in the next couple years. Um, people you know either are now or could become fascists. Uh, they could come to believe things that are monstrous, disgusting. They could come to do horrifying things. I know that many of us in the United States have been facing this problem within our extended families when it comes to Trump. I'm sorry to tell you that this problem is not going to be going away. The far right is still increasing in power. They are still intent on organizing and trying to take power uh, throughout much of the world. And how you deal with fascists in your personal life is going to become a part of your everyday experience if it isn't already. And my hope is that you can learn from the examples of uh, the people in the past um, and decide that when a person becomes a fascist, um, that should be it. You should not be a friend of a fascist. And so on that note, Ezra Pound, we'll see you in hell. All right, that was this week's 15 Minutes of Fascism. A little bit longer than 15 minutes this week, but hey, you know, it's the election. Uh, I'd like to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our graphics intro and outro music. And I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.